you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Lamentations chapter 5 as we conclude our series in the book of Lamentations today. Lamentations chapter 5, we'll be considering the whole chapter beginning in verse 1. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill and youths stumbled under loads of wood. Elders are gone from the gate, young men from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl in it. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. Now here in... Lamentations chapter 5, the prophet returns to prayer. Now, in contrast to chapter 4, the words of this chapter are explicitly addressed to the Lord. And so here in verses 1 through 18, he calls out to the Lord to remember what has happened to them, to look and to see their reproach. He recounts their situation to the Lord in hopes that the Lord will remember. And by remembering, it means not simply that the Lord will have a cognitive memory of all that has come upon Jerusalem, but rather that the Lord will remember in the sense of looking on them with a sense of compassion and that he would look upon them and be merciful to them. And then in the final four verses of the chapter, Jeremiah makes one final plea, one final plea to the Lord to take action on their behalf. And so as we consider this chapter this morning, we'll consider it under two main headings or two main points. First, sin brings misery. Second, the sovereign Lord is the only hope. Sin brings misery. The sovereign Lord is the only hope. And so as Jeremiah pours out his heart to the Lord here again, recounting what has come upon them, he begins there in verse 2 by saying, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. He begins here with something that was very near and dear to the heart of godly Israelites, their inheritance. Just think of 
Think of Naboth back in the book of 1 Kings. Ahab wanted this vineyard, and Naboth said, no, no, this is, this is my inheritance. I'm not just going to sell it to you just because you want a vegetable garden. This was something near and dear to the heart of the Israelites, at least the godly ones. Now, when we think of an inheritance, we usually think of something that parents have left to their children when, they're di- when they die, or maybe something that grandparents would pass down uh, to grandchildren in their will or something like that. But when Jeremiah speaks of an inheritance here, he's not simply talking about what parents had passed down to their children. Well, certainly their inheritance was passed down from generation to generation. Nevertheless, this Old Testament idea of one's inheritance carried far more weight than that. Broadly speaking, the inheritance was the land, which ultimately was the gift of the Lord. Moses had referred to it in Deuteronomy 4.21 as the good land which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. This was the land that the Lord had promised to Abraham to give to his descendants. The Lord had made good on that promise. He had driven out the nations. He had brought them in. They had divided it up at the Lord's command into the, the tribes and the various families. And this earthly and temporal inheritance of the land that was given to them pointed ahead to the eternal and imperishable inheritance of the people of God, which is reserved in heaven. Just as the earthly temple was a shadow of the the heavenly reality, as we find in the book of Hebrews, so too the inheritance of the land was pointing forward ultimately to, to heaven and the eternal reality, the eternal and imperishable inheritance of God's people. And therefore, this means that there is something of profound theological implication going on here when the inheritance of God's chosen people has been handed over to strangers. Just as there is great theological implication to the destruction of the temple that took place when Jerusalem fell, so also there is theological implication to the fact that now this earthly inheritance of God's people has been just handed over to strangers. This testifies to the great anger and indignation of the Lord against the people. If you can imagine a parent rewriting their will after one of their children had done something terribly heinous, such that the parent was essentially saying, I don't want them to have my stuff when I'm gone because they have conducted themselves in this way. Such a situation would be somewhat analogous to the situation that's going on here. Obviously, The Lord is not dying. That's not the way they received the inheritance. That's not the point. But the point is, is that the Lord was so angry with the people because of their sin that he said, I don't want them to have this inheritance that I had allotted to them. He doesn't want them in the land enjoying his good gifts to them because of their sin. Now, as Jeremiah continues there in verses 3 and following, he The things that he tells us there should come as no surprise to us. The people have become orphans, the women have become widows, and this is because the men have either been killed or been taken off into exile. Their captors have now taken over everything, such that the people are forced to pay even for the most basic things of life, like drinking water and wood for cook fires. The pursuers have worn down the populace of the land, In order to get enough food to get by, they have to look elsewhere, as is indicated for verse 6. And on top of that, venturing out for food was dangerous, as is indicated in verse 9. According to verse 8, 
the slaves, likely the slaves of the Babylonians, the lowest of the invaders, now have authority over the Jews. The burning heat of famine takes its toll on their bodies, as seen in verse 10. Then in verses 11 through 14, we see some specific effects of the situation as it had impacted various demographics of the population. There's been sexual assault against women, as seen in verse 11. Verse 12 tells how the figures of authority have fared. The princes were hung by the hands of the Babylonian. The elders of the old men, generally seen as the respected leaders of the community, have now not been given the respect that was due to them. The traditional role of elders, that of judging cases in the gates of the city, has come to an end, as indicated in verse 14. And verse 13 tells of how the young men and boys have been now worked ruthlessly. Working at the grinding of the mill was the work of low slaves. And now the young men of Jerusalem are forced to do it. Young boys were forced to carry so much wood for the new powers that be that they're falling down under the weight of the loads that they are made to carry. And then according to verse 14, the young men have ceased from their music. Music used to give them enjoyment and happiness as a pastime, but the young men are no longer interested. They're unhappy, distressed, and worn out by the work that is now required of them. The various demographics of Jerusalem have been affected in these various ways, ways that are particularly devastating to each one of them. And the collective effect of the judgment that they've received is seen in verse 15. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. Now what a contrast this chapter presents in its description of Jerusalem to the description of the nation when things were at their best or perhaps close to their best as, what, as it was during the days of, of King Solomon. So during the days of Solomon, we're told in 1 Kings 4.20 that Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Plenty to eat, plenty to drink, plenty to make them rejoice. Under the new order of things, it's hard to eat, hard to get food, hard to drink. You have to pay for your drinking water, and joy has disappeared. Mourning has come instead. And verse 16 elaborates on the situation further by saying that the crown has fallen from their head, which is to say their national glory had gone from them. Their kings, their priests, their temple, their capital city, their independence was all taken from them. And even the basics of life and personal dignity had vanished or were at least difficult to come by. Again, as, as we've seen over and over in this book, Jeremiah is not shy about making the connection between this catastrophe and the sin of the nation. The personal culpability of the present generation was acknowledged in verse 16. He says, Woe to us, for we have sinned. They themselves were guilty and were suffering woe because of their sins. And at the same time, the Jews were also reaping what was sown for them by their forefathers, as acknowledged in verse 7. Our fathers have sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquity. Now, this coming of judgment was set in motion by the sinfulness of their forefathers. And even though those sinful forefathers had passed from the scene, nevertheless, the affliction still came upon their descendants. The Lord had declared in Exodus 34, 7, that he visits the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those 
who hate him. There's nothing unjust about the judgment of God. And the chief reason is because of what is explicitly affirmed in verse 16. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Their forefathers had sinned and set the judgment in motion, and those who had followed them in time followed them also in their evil ways. And even even the godly remnant that was there in Jerusalem during the time of the, the Babylonian attack and the fall of the city, men like Jeremiah and others who were swept up in the judgment and suffered the consequences of the sins of the previous generation and the sins of the current generation, they suffered in the punishment even though they didn't share in the guilt of all of their sins. And yet even that godly remnant was not altogether innocent. Though their sins may not have been the sins that brought the nation crashing down, even still, they were sinners. Jeremiah was a sinner. Any other godly person there in Jerusalem was a sinner. And as such, all ought to bear in mind the truth that we observed back in chapter 3, verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Nothing to complain about. We're all sinners. We get what we deserve If that, sometimes the Lord is gracious and doesn't even give us what we deserve. This prayer describes the misery of Jerusalem and the people who still remained alive after its fall. This prayer confessed the sin. It confessed the cause of the situation was sin. And as a result of their sin and the judgment which had come upon them because of it, their hearts are now faint, their eyes are growing dim, As we find in verse 17, they're stunned on the inside and on the outside they're barely hanging on for their survival. This condition is because of what happened to them and their city. It's because, as he says in verse 18, because of Mount Zion which lies desolate and that desolation then was exemplified by the fact that Wild animals, foxes, are now inhabiting and prowling about the city and the temple grounds. The population has been so devastated and carted off, just a few remaining. And now what was once the highlight of the capital city, the highlight of the nation, the temple, the temple grounds, Mount Zion, is now inhabited by wild animals. This is Jeremiah's prayer, confessing the sin and misery of Jerusalem. Jeremiah has laid out the hard reality of the facts as they are on the ground. And though certainly the times in which we live are nothing like those in which Jerusalem fell, nevertheless, sin and misery are present with us. How many of us can look back at our own lives or at the lives of our families, perhaps, and see the sin that has been committed and see the misery that has resulted? Sin brings misery. It brings misery here in this world and for all who die in their sins apart from Christ. It brings misery in the life to come. And the consequences for sin are not merely relegated to one's personal life. The consequences extend to the level of the state and the church, the corporate, political, and religious entities. This is what happened here in Jerusalem. The Jewish state was destroyed because of the collective sins of the nation. The The church, the the temple, the religious system was destroyed because of the sins of the nation. The worship of God according to the law of Moses was brought to an end, at least for the time being, because of sin. 
As we saw back in chapter 1, verse 4, the roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts. And we would do well to keep this in mind, that sin wrecks not only personal lives, but also the civil state and the church as well. We're reminded in Proverbs 14.34 that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Now this was true not merely in regard to the Old Testament theocracy of Israel, but of all nations, and it remains true to this day. Righteous conduct exalts a nation, sinful conduct disgraces a nation. No doubt there are many godly and righteous people in our nation, but there are also many sinners, and there are sins which are permitted and encouraged by the laws of the land. Sin is a disgrace to any people. Now, historically, there were some laws in our land that treated people unjustly based on the color of their skin. Such laws were disgraceful. By God's grace, those laws are gone. But now we have laws and court decisions that are at least as ungodly, and in some cases more ungodly. Laws and court decisions in regard to abortion, laws and court decisions in regard to so-called homosexual marriage. We have official policies that allow men to identify as women and women to identify as men, and so on. Keep, keep going down the list. And beyond the official decisions of courts and legislatures and executive orders, just look at the sin that is promoted and celebrated by the culture at large. I'm no prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, and so I will not say what will come upon us because of these sins, but let me simply say what Proverbs said. Sin is a disgrace to any people. These sins are a disgrace to our nation. And this disgrace is collectively composed of the sins of individuals. I certainly desire that the Lord would be gracious to our land and would grant salvation to many. I certainly desire that instead of bringing agendas that are harmful to the church and harmful to the cause of Christ, that many of our governing officials would be in part the fulfillment of Isaiah 49:23, where the Lord speaks to his people and he says, Kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. Now Spurgeon commented on that verse in Isaiah 49, and he said, I have no objection whatever to this text being carried out to the full. I to the very letter, only mind where the kings are to be put. What place does the verse say they are to occupy? They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. There is no headship of the church here, nothing of that sort. The kings are not to be at the kings are to be at the feet of the church, and what the state ought to do is to submit itself to God and to obey his commands and give full liberty to the preaching of the gospel. May God be gracious and grant us such government. But if he doesn't, if the Lord punishes the land by the means of allowing such sinfulness to continue to flourish, because that is a plague and a punishment in and of itself, if this kind of sin which I've described, continues to flourish, or if he punishes us by some other means, let's be clear, we have no grounds for complaint. In view of our personal sins, we have no leg to stand on in offering a complaint. Our sins may not be the sins of the broader culture, but we have sins enough of our own. No ground for complaint. And the same is true in regard to the collective sins of the nation. We have no grounds for complaint. 
And again, sin and misery not only uh, sin brings misery not only to the nation but also to the church as well. And isn't this what we find in our Lord's words to the churches in Revelation chapters two and three? We find that unless the church of Ephesus would repent, he threatened to remove the candlestick of the church. In other words, threatened to remove them from being a church because they had forsaken their first love. Found that in Revelation two verses four and five. He Likewise, reproves the church of Thyatira because they tolerated the woman Jezebel who called herself a prophetess and led Christ's servants astray into acts of immorality and idolatry. Our Lord promised that unless they repented, he would judge them and the church would know that he is the one who searches hearts and minds and will give to each according to his deeds. You can find the particulars in Revelation 2, verses 20 through 25. Sin brings consequences to individuals, to nations, and to churches. Sin brings misery on all levels, and it brings misery to all groups and all classes of people. Sin is no respecter of person in regard to the misery which follows in its wake. And so let this chapter stand as a warning to us in that regard. And this brings us then to our second point for this morning, which is the sovereign Lord is the only hope. This confession of sin and misery here in chapter 5 began with Jeremiah calling on the Lord to remember, to look, to see. He's asking the Lord to look at their particular situation and take action. And this plea then reaches its highest pitch, beginning uh, in these last four verses of the chapter. In verse 19, he proclaims the sovereignty of God. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. He knows that all power in heaven and on earth belong to the Lord, and that if there would be any change for the benefit of their nation, it had to come from God. It had to be because the sovereign Lord looked down and remembered his people and looked upon them and took action on their behalf. But in their present experience, it seemed as if the Lord had forgotten. It seemed as if the Lord wasn't remembering, as if he wasn't looking, because that's been a repeated cry throughout the book. It's, look, see. Lord, look down. See the misery. Because even though the battle was over, Jerusalem had fallen, the misery was not over. The misery was continuing. The trouble of Jerusalem had not ceased once the smoke of battle had cleared. Hence the question in verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so long? You see, Jeremiah understood that God's hand had been put forth against them. He understood that the hand of judgment had not yet been pulled back. Because in their experience, the people still felt as if they were forsaken. And in that desperation brought on by sin and misery and judgment... He appeals to God to take sovereign action on behalf of their restoration. And so he says in verse 21, Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Now let's notice a few things here about verse 21. First of all, notice that Jeremiah doesn't simply say, Lord, just make the pain stop. Lord, just take away all of the consequences. Lord, just make us prosperous again and that will be enough for us. That's not what he says. This may sometimes be our first thought in the heat of the moment when we're suffering because of our sins. We just want the pain to be over. We just want the consequences to stop. We need to understand that that doesn't necessarily, well, actually doesn't at all, lead to healing. 
If the pain stops and we just proceed on in our sins with no repentance, we're going to suffer again sometime, either in this world or in eternity. And so the remembrance that Jeremiah is looking for here is not simply a cessation of the pain. Rather, he knows that the true answer to their dilemma is to be found in being restored, not just to prosperity, but restored to the Lord. So he says, restore us to you, O Lord. And thus the restoration that truly fixes things is a restoration to the Lord. This involves confession of sin on the part of those who are alienated from God, which is an acknowledgement of our sins. We're agreeing with what the Word of God says about us. We look to the Word and we see what it says about sin and we see ourselves there and we say, yeah, Lord, that is us. We need your mercy. We agree with God's verdict. We ask for forgiveness and for mercy, which we do not deserve. Confession of sin involves sorrow. And as we find in 2 Corinthians 7.10, sorrow according to the will of God brings repentance, and that is a repentance which is without regret. And thus, true restoration to the Lord involves repentance on the part of those who are being restored. It's a turning away from sin and a turning to God. And indeed, this is the very thing that verse 21 is asking for. This word that is translated as restore can also be translated as turn. And so the King James translated, Turn thou us to thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. And this brings us then to the second thing that we need to observe about verse 21, and that is the absolute dependence upon the Lord which is expressed here. This prayer is an implicit acknowledgement that we are not able in ourselves to repent. Jeremiah doesn't say, Lord, we will return to you. Please let us be restored after we have turned ourselves to you. In response to our return, which we initiate, we ask that you would receive us kindly. That's not what he asks. Rather, he asks for the Lord himself to do the turning, for the Lord himself to do the restoring so that they might be restored, so that he would cause them to turn. Jeremiah knows that when the Lord does such a thing, those whom he turns are truly turned back and restored. And thus we find in Jeremiah 31, 18, the words of Ephraim, Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. In light of everything that had happened to the nation, Jeremiah knows that the only hope lies being restored to the Lord, and he knows that the only hope of being restored to the Lord is for the Lord himself to do the restoring, for the Lord himself to do the turning of the hearts. And in this we see the true depths of human helplessness, and we see the sovereignty of God in showing mercy and the riches of his grace in showing mercy. And we do well to consider those two things, the, the depths of our helplessness and the riches of God's sovereign mercy and grace Sometimes a calamity helps to strip away the pretenses better than just the -the run-of-the-mill, everyday events of life. The crisis of Jerusalem, the depth of their sin and the hard-heartedness of the people, and then the vast extent of the judgment which had come upon them, revealed and brought out the desperate need of the people. They needed to be restored to the Lord, and such restoration required that God himself would do the restoring. And the reason 
for them is the same thing as the reason for people today. It's because they were dead in sin. As such, they could not effect their restoration. As such, they could not even repent of their sins of their own accord. They needed the grace of God to give them the gift of repentance. And this need extends to all of us today. Repentance is not something that we bring to the table when we are saved. It's certainly true that we must repent. We're commanded to do so, and all who will be saved will repent. But because we are so dead in our sins, we're unable to do so of our own accord. And therefore, if there's to be any return at all to God, God must graciously grant repentance to us from his mercy and grace. Because apart from Christ, our hearts are so dead and entangled in sin that we cannot pluck ourselves away from it. If we are to turn away from sin at all, it must be the gracious gift of God to us. And indeed, he does give this gift to his people. And so, not surprisingly, then we read of repentance in the New Testament being spoken of as a gift which is given by God. And so in Acts eleven eighteen, after Peter had preached to Cornelius and told about how the Holy Spirit was given to Cornelius, and Peter's reporting on this to the Jews back in Jerusalem, the Jews hear about this and they say, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. God has given them this, this repentance, this turning. And likewise, Paul speaks in 2 Timothy 2.25, uh, describing how pastors need to respond in gentleness when correcting those who are in opposition. He says of the opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance then is something which God graciously grants to his people when he calls them to salvation and draws them to himself. Or to frame it in terms of what we find in verse 21 in our text, this is a request which the Lord answers. Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. This is a prayer which God answers. And this is a testimony to the amazing grace of our God. Not only does he pardon sin in mercy for those who truly seek him, he gives them even the desire to be restored, the ability to be restored. He works in them supernaturally by the Holy Spirit such that they turn from their sin and flee to Christ and receive the gift of forgiveness and new life in Christ. I think the canons of Dort expressed this truth quite helpfully when they put it this way. They said, when God carries out this good pleasure in his chosen one or works true conversion in them, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruit of good deeds. And we need to own here both the extent of our deadness in sin and also the great grace of God, which is able to subdue sinners and is able to turn their hearts, turn our hearts, so that we willingly come to God for salvation. And these two things go hand in hand. The greatness of our sin and the greatness of God's grace. To minimize the one is to, to minimize the other. 
If we minimize our deadness and sin and think that we can turn ourselves to the Lord, that we have the, the power to repent whenever we want, we minimize the, the grace of God at work in our salvation. And on the flip side, if we minimize the, the grace of God and the work of our salvation, we then begin to act as if we're not totally dead in our sins apart from Christ. But the biblical truth of the matter is that we are helpless in our sins, but the grace of God is even greater than our depravity. Praise God for that. Now, this has implications then for how we should pray for the lost and for how we should evangelize. We need to understand that apart from the the grace of God in Christ, sinners are dead in sin. We must call them to repentance by the preaching of the gospel, but we can't make anyone repent. Repentance is beyond the power of our persuasion, something that must be granted by God. Now, by all means, be persuasive in presenting the gospel. By all means, be clear about Sin, be clear about the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But understand that it is God who grants repentance. It's not up to your persuasion. And when we pray for the lost, let's let's ask that God would grant them this gift of repentance. And let's also ask for ourselves, who are believers, that God would grant to us repentance, that he would grant to us that we would continually be willing to turn from our sin as the word shines light on it, and we see it and are convicted by it, that we would turn continually from our sins to the Lord. Now this prayer of chapter 5 ends with those haunting words of verse 22. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. And when you put verses 21 and 22 together, you can perhaps see the argument that Jeremiah seems to be presenting to the Lord in this prayer. Let's let's read those two verses together. Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. We might envision here Jeremiah pleading with the Lord and, as it were, laying out two possibilities, two possible ways in which the Lord might deal with them, two possible futures that the Lord might have for these people. He can either restore them to himself or else utterly and completely reject them in exceeding anger. What possibilities exist other, other than those two? God can either restore them or else can cast them off utterly, completely, and forever. And when the request is framed in this way, this is actually a strong argument for the Lord to be gracious to the people, especially in light of God's promises already given to them. And so just listen to the words of Leviticus 26, 43 to 45. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and my soul abhorred, their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord." Now, in Leviticus 26, the Lord was warning about the penalties of disobedience. Exile would come if they disobeyed and violated the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. The land would enjoy its Sabbaths of rest, which the people had not given to the land. 
And then in the end, the Lord would not utterly reject or forsake his people. He would remember for them the covenant which he had made with their fathers. And Jeremiah speaks in much the same way. When the Lord spoke through him, Jeremiah 33, 25 and 26, the Lord says, If my covenant for day and night stand not in the fixed patterns of the heaven and the earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Once again, the Lord will not utterly reject his people. He promises to have mercy on them. And it is here, in the end of the book, that Jeremiah pleads to the Lord for him to do actually what he has already promised that he will do, to restore their fortunes, to have mercy on them. He appeals to the Lord's sovereignty. He appeals to the Lord to bring them to repentance, to turn them. He knows that unless... The Lord has decided to utterly reject his people unless he's decided to go back on them. That will be what the Lord does, that he does grant restoration. And he has covenant promises from God that God is not going to utterly reject the people. So Jeremiah presents this prayer. And the Lord was faithful to answer this prayer. The Lord has been faithful to fulfill his promise to his people. The Lord granted repentance and restoration to many of the remnant. You remember that in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Ezra, many came back to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and to continue the national obedience to the law until the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we know, though that in the days of Christ, the vast majority of his nation rejected him, and as a result now, there's a season in which the Gentiles are being brought into God's kingdom, while many of the ethnic descendants of Abraham languish on the outside. As Jesus put it in Matthew 21, 43, speaking of the people's rejection of him, he said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. But even under those circumstances, the promises of God still remain. They still remain for the descendants of Abraham, Romans 11, 25 and 26, tell us that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. In short, the request of verses 21 and 22 is one which God has answered for the ethnic Jews in times past and will answer again when the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. And these are even words of hope which we Gentiles can use for ourselves and for the church when it seems to us that all is not as it ought to be. We can use the words of verses 21 and 22. Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. Though we know that local churches come and go, we also know that the universal church, the whole entire church of Christ, will be preserved. Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that no one can snatch Christ's sheep out of his hands. We know that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that the one who comes to him, he will not cast out, as he himself promises in John six thirty seven. All who come to Christ in sincere humility and sincere faith 
with a heart whose cry is summed up in the words of the closing verses of Lamentations, can rest assured that they will have a blessed outcome, that the Lord will grant them restoration. The Lord says, you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. Those who seek in this way will have their hearts turned and they will be restored. May God grant that you and I all have hearts such as this. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this book of Lamentations, the hard things of which it speaks, the reminders that it gives of things which we would do well to be reminded of. Father, we ask that you would give us hearts that long for true restoration to you, hearts that see the misery caused by sin and hearts that are drawn to hate sin and love righteousness because of it. Father, we thank you for your great grace to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask your mercy to be upon us. Help us to love you and serve you faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.